0: Ladies and gentlemen, I was on Paul Engel's The Constitution Study for Memorial Day, and uh, I've never caught Paul Engel's show, but he, he does a great show, so I strongly encourage you to watch it if you have it, And uh, you should watch Paul Engel every week. Uh, I received a letter after that that I think I want to share with you. I think it's highly relevant to the show that Paul Engel did, and I think uh, really to the Constitution Study in general. And I think it's also highly relevant with all of the mass shootings that are occurring in our country. So, I want to open up today with that letter. This is, of course, the voice of a nation, and I am Wallace Garneau, guest hosting for Malcolm. So welcome. Anyway, here's that letter. This is to the officers of the Third Brigade of the Third Division of the Militia of Massachusetts, it's dated October 11th, 1798. Gentlemen, I have received from Major Hull and Brigadier General Walker your unanimous address from Lexington animated with a martial spirit and expressed with a military dignity, becoming your character and the place and memorial plains in which it was adopted. While our country remains untainted with the principles and manners which are now producing desolation in so many parts of the world, while she continues sincere and incapable of insidious and impious policy, we shall have the strongest reason to rejoice in the local destination assigned us by Providence." But should the people of America once become capable of that deep simulation towards one another and towards foreign nations, which assumes the language of justice and moderation while it is practicing inequity and extravagance, and displays in the most captivating manner the charming pictures of candor, frankness, and sincerity while it is rioting and rapine and insolence, this country would be the most miserable habitation in the world, because we have no government armed with a power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice ambition and revenge or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other an address so unanimous and firm from the officers commanding 2,800 men consisting of such substantial citizens as are able and willing at their own expense completely to arm and clothe themselves in handsome uniforms does honor to that division of the militia which has done so much honor to their country. Oaths in this country are as yet universally considered as sacred obligations, that which you have taken and so solemnly repeated on that venerable spot is ample pledge of your sincerity and devotion to your country and its government. John Adams. You've all heard parts of that letter. Certainly that our Constitution is wholly inadequate to all but a moral and religious people. has been quoted a great many times. But as we see these mass shooting events, more and more frequently it would seem, that through our country, just another one the other day, we've had one recently now in a supermarket, or a grocery store, Uh, we had a couple in schools, it just seems to be happening all the time. And I ask myself, is the Constitution adequate for the American people today? Are we a moral and religious people? And I look at that and I think, if John Adams is right, and he is, and we are no longer a moral people, if we practice what looks like sincere love of brotherhood, brotherly love toward toward one another, but it's fake. If we don't truly love one another as Americans, then we need a different document. We need to eliminate the Bill of Rights. We need people of noble birth to grab us by the nose, kick us in the throat, hold us down, and tell us what to do, because otherwise we're going to tear one another to shreds. That's what John Adams was talking about, and that's what I want to talk to you about today. Should we shit-can the Constitution and ask for a king? Now, do I ask that in a facetious manner? Yeah, I kind of do. But I have a very, very strong point that I want to make. And the point is, I've got a loaded handgun sitting right now on my desk. It's usually not just out on my desk. I keep it in a box. It's here for protection in case I need to defend my house, my family, my property. But it is. It's a loaded handgun. In my opinion, it's far more dangerous than an AR-15. It's a 45 caliber model uh, 1911 Kimber semi-automatic handgun, 45 caliber round. That's a slow bullet. It's designed to mushroom when it hits a target, expanding as much as possible and doing as much damage as humanly possible. If you shoot somebody who's wearing a bulletproof vest, it will not penetrate the bulletproof vest, but it'll feel like somebody hitting that person as hard as they can with a sledgehammer. It will take them off their feet and you have time to aim a a well-aimed headshot while they're getting up. It's a very, very capable gun, firing a very, very deadly round. And in my opinion, it's far more appropriate for close-quarters combat, such as I would have to practice in my house if somebody tried to break in to harm myself and my family, than is a long gun. I could acquire a target much faster with a handgun, at close range at least, and I can, I can, I can inflict the damage to, to the perpetrator almost immediately. A long gun, it takes time to bring it around. It takes time. It's, it's more cumbersome. The sights being further apart, it takes longer to adjust them. It's just not as practical for in the home. And yet, this handgun sitting here on my desk has killed no one. I'm staring at it right now. It's just sitting there. It has absolutely no intention of killing anyone. I can put it on a chair. It's just as safe on a chair as it is on my desk. I can put it on the floor. I can open the door, let the gun, to the extent that it has eyes, can see people walking by in front of my house, and yet it does nothing. So when we hear that people were killed by guns, were they? It's probably more accurate to say that they were killed by people holding guns or people using guns. See, it's not the gun that kills. It's the hateful heart. People are being killed by people who have this belief that their life doesn't matter, or if it matters, it matters in a negative way, that life is suffering. Dylan Klebold, I think it was, one of the Columbine shooters, wrote extensively prior to Columbine about the motivations behind the attack. And what he said is essentially that life is a mistake, it's a very painful mistake, that the purpose of life is suffering and torment, and that the world would be better if people did not exist, if if there were no people, if there were no life, that life is essentially a mistake. So his goal was to end life, but he didn't only want to end his own life. He wrote that uh, in attacking Columbine, which of course he had not done at the time he wrote this, he was just intending to, he was was planning on it. He wrote that uh, his biggest regret in attacking the school was that he couldn't kill more people. He said that if he could have caused a nuclear war, if he could have fired nuclear weapons and destroyed all life on the face of the earth, he would, of course, do it and do it gladly, knowing that he was wiping out all of the suffering and torment of all of the people everywhere on the face of the earth. That's kind of the mindset of people who do these kinds of things. They don't just want to die. They do want to die, but they don't just want to die. They want to take as many people as they can with them. The more innocent the people they take out, the better. Their intent is to harm as many people as humanly possible. And in their mind, at least, they seem to think that they're ending the suffering of those people as well. And you listen to that, and it's, it's so insidiously evil to, to, never mind even if they're right, to presume that you have the ability to then apply that to others. Now, If you want to take your own life, don't go into a school. Just go into your basement and do it. But don't take other people with you. If if that truly is how you feel, then, then, then why would people have so much hate that they would want to take that torment and that suffering and, and, and assume that other people feel it as well? And my belief is it's not because we have the right to bear arms. We've had the right to bear arms for almost 250 years. I believe it's the hateful heart that is new. I believe that our schools have stopped teaching people to be good citizens and have instead taught them to be members of marginalized groups. See, it used to be that the way you got ahead in America, the way you got political power was by getting economic power. You built, you opened a business, you worked hard, you saved, you spent frugally, you did the right things. You were able to buy a house. You were able to have property. You were able to expand your business, and you're well-followed. And as you gained wealth, well, with money comes a certain amount of power. People listen to you. You have the ability to, to tell people what you think, and all of a sudden, they think that matters. You know, when Elon Musk says something on Twitter, on uh, the, the TED show, or whatever, he, when he speaks publicly, people listen. He affects public opinion. Now That's power. When you can affect public opinion, you have power. But we're transitioning from a country where you gain power by doing good things, by doing things that benefit others, such as opening a business that produces goods and services other people want and are willing to spend money on. When we transition from that to one where the way people gain power is by joining groups that are supposedly oppressed by the whole, are we teaching people brotherly love? Or are we teaching them to hate? My fellow Americans, we today are teaching people to hate. Our schools now for generations have been breaking people up into groups, teaching those groups that other groups are evil, that other groups are the problem. Single white men are the issue. If we could just get rid of the straight white men, not single white men, straight white men are the issue. If we could just get rid of the straight white men, all of our problems would go away. Well, if you're not a straight white man and you believe that, you would start looking at straight white men and thinking, yeah, maybe these people should be put in concentration camps. Maybe these people should be locked up for the betterment of society. Maybe we should have a little genocide, get rid of the straight white men, have a much better society without them. And if you're a straight white man, what do you think? All of a sudden, it looks like society truly is out to get you. And while straight white men may seem like the majority, really, men aren't a majority. There are more women in this country than there are men. So straight white men cannot possibly be a majority. When you take intersectionality and you break it down to its most fundamental pieces, Allowing people to be in as many marginalized groups as, as possible. Really, what we find is that the smallest, most oppressed minority is the individual. And we are all individuals. So as ironic as it is, as soon as we take a, intersectionality down to its its most isolated unit, the individual, it ceases being a, moral, a, a, major, a minority and it becomes not just a majority, but we're all individuals. So it becomes a unifying factor for all of us. We are all human beings. We all have the dignity of being created by our creator with certain unalienable rights. And yet, that's not what we teach. We don't teach people to be good citizens. Our schools increasingly teach people to hate one another. And so I look at these shootings and I think, what kind of person would do that? And for a long time, I struggled with that. How can somebody be so evil as to want to take their anger and their hatred and, and apply it to innocent people that they don't even know? Well, I guess when you teach an entire population of people for two or three generations to hate one another, you reap what you sow. And that's what we have done as a society. We have taught our children to separate themselves into identity groups. We've taught them that political power comes either from being an oppressor or an oppressee and an attempt to right the sins of the wrong, of the, of the past rather, in, in, in order to right the sins of the past. We have flipped it on its head and said it's not the oppressor that we're going to give the power to, It is the oppressee. So now we tell people, if you want voice, you have to be a member of a marginalized group because that's who we're going to propel. That's who we're going to put in front. White people get to the back. That's what we're saying. We're saying, men, masculinity is toxic. Stop it. That that you feel welling up within you as you begin to approach manhood, as you hit puberty, and become a little rebellious. All of the things that men go through, as they, that boys go through as they transition to men. When we say that is the problem with society, we're teaching young men to hate themselves. We're teaching them that they are the problem. Children going home, asking their parents, am I evil? And we're blaming guns. Well, to the degree that we're teaching our children to hate one another that we're teaching our children to go into schools and shoot one another up. Yeah, I guess guns do become a problem because the Bill of Rights is wholly inadequate to a society of people that are taught intersectionality and that they want to go out and kill people. We don't have a society structured for that. Mao had a society structured for that. That's the kind of society where you line people up that you think might be guilty and just put a bullet in the back of their heads for the betterment of society for the cultural revolution, which we're going through, by the way. We are going through a cultural revolution, very similar to the one Mao put China through. We just don't have the dictator at the top of the the top yet. We have an administration that would like to be, which is why they're doing things like creating a disinformation board, which is on Pause. Joe Biden did not cancel his plan for a ministry of truth. He only put it on pause. People, that's coming back. Don't think it's forgotten. That will come back. The ministry of truth. So we're witnessing a transition to a very different kind of society. And on the one hand, we can look at it and say, what we're transitioning to is evil. But on the other hand, When you look at what we have been teaching our children in public schools now for generations, we're teaching them to be racist. They've actually changed the definition of the word racism such that it's now the exact opposite of what it used to be. Racism used to mean Uh, holding beliefs about people based upon their race, upon the color of their skin, for example, uh, about their character, about their intelligence, about their judgment, about their skills and abilities, holding one race as being better or worse than another, thinking that race matters used to be racism. Martin Luther King said, don't judge people by the color of their skin, judge them by the content of their character. That's not what we teach in our schools. No, what we teach in our schools is that You can judge people entirely based on their race. They changed the definition. The definition now is power plus prejudice. So if you don't have power, if you're not white, you can't be racist. And not just that, but we teach that prejudice can be assumed because we all have inherently within us some level of of subconscious prejudice. It's baked into our bones. Can't get away from it. So... Once you say racism is power plus prejudice, and you say prejudice can be assumed, okay, that means that racism is power. Whomever is in power is racist. By definition, that's now the definition that people are using. Now, one problem we have with regard to racism is we have two competing definitions. There are still a lot of people myself included who would say that racism is the belief that some races are better than others that there are differences innate to skin color or to race to ethnicity that makes some people very different than others in ways that matter i consider that to be a racist belief i consider the definition of racism that the left is using today power plus privilege i consider that to be a racist definition so now we have these two definitions of racism floating around and it is impossible not to fit one or the other because they are both calling the other people racist. The new definition of racist is exactly the opposite of the old definition of racist. It's ridiculous, people. We're teaching our children to be racist, teaching it in our schools. How does that fit in with the 14th Amendment? teaching everybody that they are unequal, that they should not have the same protection under the law, that we need to have different protection for white people, black people, gay people, fat people. We're teaching our children to hate. And these damn talking heads and politicians, Joe Biden blamed 40% of Republicans for the Buffalo shooting. He said that the day after CNN blamed 47% of Republicans. They had a poll. The poll said 47% of Republicans believe that Democrats are utilizing illegal immigration to gain power. Well, if they were, the way that would work is we do a census every six years, and that census determines how many people are in different states, And then we apportion the Congress, the House of Representatives, based upon the number of people living within all those states. So states that have more people get more votes. The Electoral College follows the same thing. The number of people you have in the House of Representatives plus the number of senators you have, that's each state's number of electors. So membership in the House of Representatives is proportional based upon population. And the Electoral College is largely proportional based upon population and if you have illegal immigration and you have generous welfare benefits for people that are in the country illegally in democrat-controlled states but not in republican-controlled states that will attract illegal aliens into the democrat-controlled states. Joe Biden himself used to say that this was exactly the strategy that democrats were employing. Nancy Pelosi has been on the House of, on the floor of Congress countless times, extolling the virtue of having a less white society. Joe Biden actually used to use the phrase that the society was becoming less white because of illegal immigration, because of lax enforcement of our border security. Now, somebody might say that if you're doing it in order to make the country less white, that that would be a racist belief. That a sane person would look at it and say, no, it's about culture and power. It has nothing to do with race. The fact that the people across the border are Hispanic has nothing to do. It's it's a fact that they weren't raised under the U.S. Constitution. It's a fact that they did not grow up in a free country the way that we did. A country that extols the virtue of liberty the way the United States does. That's the difference. It has nothing to do with race. That's what a sane person would say. But Joe Biden says it's to make the country less white. And then he turns around and says that if you believe it's about making the country less white, you are racist, and points at 47% of Republicans and says it's them. Ladies and gentlemen, a month ago, 80% of Democrats would have admitted that's what they're doing because they were saying it openly over and over and over again. And now, all of a sudden, they say that it's racist to say that, to believe that that's what they're doing is racist, they say. Okay? By extension, then, I guess taking them at their word is racist. And so is, according to Joe Biden, not agreeing with them, not believing them. If you believe them, you're racist because you're taking them at their word. If you don't believe them, you're racist because that's what they say. They just everybody now who disagrees is suddenly a racist. And people, it's the, the, the real dangerous thing here is that there are racists out there. The guy who shot up that grocery store in Buffalo, was very, very clear that he was doing it because he wanted to kill black people. Racism is out there. Racism is real. Racism is insidious. And there are still people who want to kill other people because of the color of their skin. But when we call everybody a racist and paint with such broad brushes, the word begins to lose meaning. I mean, is anybody today afraid of being called a racist? It's like being called by your name. Everybody's being called racist. It's like the th- it's like baseball now in America. Calling somebody a racist is a new American pastime. But that doesn't mean everybody who's called racist is. And so when we when we paint with such a broad brush, the 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 connotation of the word, which is the way the word makes us feel, begins to change. It's supposed to sting to call somebody a racist, which is why Democrats have been doing it for so long. They call Republicans in Congress racist. The Republicans if they fall back, they retreat. It stinks. They don't want to be called that. CNN pulls somebody on and says, oh, you just used the word apartment. We all know that's a code word. You're a racist. Then the, the, the Republican says, oh, well." it goes on the defensive. Win for the Democrats. So they've been using this playbook to put people on the defensive for so long that now, you get Rand Paul on CNN and they say, oh, well, you're a libertarian. Doesn't that make you a racist? He looks at him and very politely tells him to, you know, to F off. Well, I'm not a racist. You can go kiss my ass. I'm not a racist. And so nobody's retreating anymore. And nobody's retreating because the stigma associated with the word has lost some of that value. It's just been used too often. And yet not only does real racism still exist out there, Ladies and gentlemen, we're teaching our children to be racist in our schools. We call it privilege. But what is privilege? And in today's society, where the people that believe in having this oppression Olympics, where everybody is competing to find more ways that they are oppressed so that their voice can be forwarded, well, the people who believe in doing that control both chambers of Congress. They control the presidency. They control the most populous states. How can they say they're not in power? How? I, I I challenge somebody to show me how you can possibly say anybody but them are in power. The people teaching our children to be racist are in power today. And ladies and gentlemen, I don't like talking in terms of Democrats and Republicans. I like talking in terms of values if you have conservative values, if you want the country to be what it was designed to be, a country of all people being equal under the law, not equity where we take people and say different rules to achieve the same outcomes. No, equal treatment under the law. There will be no artificial barriers holding anyone back. If that's what you believe, you're a conservative and I embrace you. I don't care what you look like. I don't care what your gender is. I don't care if you are gay or trans. I don't care. Live the best life you can and afford others the opportunity to do the same. That's what I believe. That's what I champion. If you agree with that, then you agree with me. If you want to put other people in chains, if you look at your neighbor and say, how come he's got a nicer car than me? That shouldn't be allowed. If you look at Elon Musk and say, wait a minute, I'm a college professor. I'm a bright guy. I'm a part of the new nobility, or at least I should be. I'm a part of the moral and intellectual elite. Elon Musk should be an employee. He just runs a company. He's not doing anything important. I'm the ideas guy. I'm the guy who is about equity and inclusion. So I should have the money. And then you're telling teachers to teach their children, their school children their students, to hate one another and to hate themselves. Well, we've had plenty of examples of what happens when we raise people to hate just over these past few weeks. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take a brief break, give our sponsors a moment to tell you how you can stay healthy and to give me a moment to calm down. Stay tuned. We've got a lot more to talk about and we will be back after the break. Our global experts are brilliant writers and engaging hosts on a mission of a lifetime. You'll find the latest news and inspiration on the front page of AmericaOutloud.com. There are microbes in the air and they're in your house and the Genesis Fogger is the solution. This is a mobile fogger that uses a unique technology to give a non-toxic dry mist to cleanse the air and cleanse your rooms of microbes, whether they be bacterial, fungal, or viral, including SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19. So go to the Genesis Fogger website and use the promo code OUTLOUD for a discount on your purchase of the model and get going with a cleaner house as there could be more microbes on the way. We're concerned about not only the current pandemic, but future ones. So let's
1: get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio.
0: Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Surely, if you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. You can listen in on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice
1: for all. We wouldn't go a day without washing our hands, brushing our teeth, and washing our nose. Well, wait, we wash our nose? Yes, the number one place where bacteria, viruses, and pollen enter the body is through the nose. So the average person breathes over 23,000 times a day. That's 23,000 opportunities for bacteria, viruses, and irritants to get into your nose and make you sick. For an extra layer of protection, wash your nose with Clear. That is Clear, X-L-E-A-R. Pick up a bottle for you and your family today.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. I spent the first half of the show talking about how we have been teaching our children to hate one another and how having done that now for several generations, we're starting to see the fruits of our labors in terms of shootings and what have you. I really... Barely even scratched the surface, though, because I focused on mass shooting events that are in the media. Mass shootings are so popular now in Chicago, there are parts of Chicago where you should get a campaign medal just for living there. I mean, Chicago, parts of it are like Fallujah now. It's a dangerous place. There are mass shootings every weekend in Chicago. Every weekend. And it's not just Chicago. Go into any of our major cities, and the crime rates, the murder rates, It's exploding. Violent crime in our country is exploding, and why shouldn't it be? It's easy to commit violent crime against people you hate. You teach hate, you teach violent crime. The two go hand in hand, and we teach that the police are evil. I mean, imagine that. You go to California, go to New York. In parts of our country, it is now legal to steal less than a thousand dollars. Anything less than a thousand dollars from a store, shoplifting is not even a crime unless you take more than a thousand dollars worth of stuff. So. We've legalized crime. I saw an interview with a kid in New York that uh, he loves New York's new policies and crime. He's been arrested over a hundred times this year. He gets arrested, they book him, they let him go with a hearing date that he will not show up for. He misses the hearing date. If they if they arrest him again, oh, you missed your hearing date. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna arraign you for that. We're gonna arraign you for whatever you did now. Plus, we're missing your hearing date. So they arraign him. They give him a new hearing date. They release him back out in the street. He's he's back out in the street in like two or three hours. Again and again and again. He's not going to show up for any of his hearings because he doesn't do that, and there's no penalty for not doing that other than they'll arrest you and give you another hearing to skip. So we've made a mockery of our criminal justice system, and of course you've made a mockery of our criminal justice system. We're teaching people through critical legal studies, that our legal system is created to perpetuate white supremacy. So the concept of you are innocent until proven guilty is now considered a racist concept. The concept that you should be locked up only after being proven guilty in a court of law beyond a reasonable doubt in front of a jury of your peers is now considered racist. People, it's asinine, but that's what we're teaching in our schools. That's what we're teaching in law school. I mean, for God's sake. We're doing it to ourselves. So let's talk a little bit about blame. Now, it's obvious some of the people to blame are. The people that are pushing those policies and beliefs. Teachers. Yeah, I said it. If you're a public school teacher, I blame you. Every time a kid gets shot, it's your fault. Your personal fault. Because you're the one teaching them to do it. So stop. That's my message there. Stop teaching hate. So, yeah, I'm going to blame our teachers. Not all of them. There's some very good teachers out there. My parents retired from the Kalamazoo public school system. They were both teachers. I've, my, my family has a long history of teaching. My daughter is going into teaching. My aunts and uncles were almost all teachers. My grandparents, they were all teachers. So, my family has a long history of teaching. I've taught myself in colleges. So, long history of that. And and. Now that's like a family trade I guess. I but when we teach children to hate that's what we get. My parents didn't teach to hate. That's a more of that's a more of a something that's been happening since they left teaching, but it's that's what we do today. So yeah, I blame teachers. I blame Joe Biden. Joe Biden who says that conservatives today are the most extreme terrorist group the world has ever seen. We're not the ones teaching students to shoot up schools. You're doing it. And talk about teaching hate. Telling the public that you hate half of it. That you think that everybody who disagrees with you should be in prison. That they're terrorists. Jesus Christ, Joe, what the hell do you think you're doing? We have a country that's coming apart at the seams and you're creating more division. I've had enough of it. I've had enough of it. But you know who else is at fault? We are. You and me. I'm 52 years old, and I'm just getting fired up about it now. Where was I 50 years ago? Well, I was two. Where was I 30 years ago? 30 years ago, I was 32, 22 years old. I was old enough at 22. I was in the Marine Corps at 22. I wasn't fired up about the fact that we were starting to teach students to hate. The 2000s, when it became becoming public knowledge. I was beginning to become politically involved. And yet, I said nothing about that particular issue, because I didn't think it would go anywhere. Well, now it's gone somewhere, ladies and gentlemen. Now it is incumbent upon us to do something to right this ship before it goes down. In a, in a We're sinking. And we're going to see more and more of this because we're teaching people to hate more and more. We're becoming more divisive rather than less. And until we put our foot down, those who still believe in a moral country, until we put our foot down and say, you know what? you cannot teach my children to hate your children anymore until we get fired up about it put our foot down tell our school boards to to go kiss off tell politicians who become divisive the same thing until we stop teaching our people to hate one another it's just going to continue and Somebody might say, I'm being divisive right now. Well, yes, I'm being divisive by saying that we should stop being divisive. It's impossible. You you can't be on both sides of an issue this important. But we have to get back to a country of e pluribus unum, out of many, one. We have to be one American people again, and that means having shared values. That means believing in the U.S. Constitution and in the principles this country was founded under. And that's incumbent upon us. It's not just going to magically happen. The party in power doesn't want it to. And the other party, the party in opposition, Republicans, well, once they get elected, they become a part of the problem also. Michael Franzese has a new book out called Mafia Democracy. I'm about half through with it. Great book. I highly encourage you to read it. What he does is he says, our government has become the mafia, that they they become increasingly Machiavellian. He names names. He gets specific. A Great book. So that's where we are, and you know, I wrote an article, I guess about a week or two ago now, on critical race theory, critical theory, cultural Marxism, all of that, and uh, I got a lot of praise for it. I also was told a number of times that it was too long. Now, when I first started writing for Malcolm, and I I want to be very clear, I prefer writing to to doing a radio show, not because I don't like being on the radio, I I I like being on the radio, but I also like being precise with my language, and it's hard to be as precise on the language on the radio as when you're writing, because, of course, when you're writing, you go back and you, you, you edit the draft. You, you start with a rough draft, and over time, you polish it and, and improve the language, and, and it becomes more precise as a part of that process. And I like being very, very precise with my language, particularly on a topic like this. I want to be even more precise because it is a contentious topic and that makes it more important rather than less that my intent and meaning be clear. So I like, I like writing more than I, than I do being on the radio. But a number of people told me that it was too long. And I thought, you know, I get that the ideal editorial is about a thousand words. And sometimes I actually write something even shorter than a thousand words. Uh, that seems to be the attention span that people are the most comfortable with. Something that just takes maybe four minutes. You read it on the bus, you know, whatever. But while you can, can can get a thought out there in a thousand words or less, it's hard to put a robust argument out in a thousand words or less. And I like to write things that are pretty bulletproof. You know, if you read that article on, on cultural Marxism, uh, it would be very difficult to find anything wrong with it other than saying that I'm a crackpot that just made everything up off the top of my head. And if somebody wants to make that argument, that's very easy to shoot down. I'm not. I didn't. So please read that article. I think it's one of the more important articles that I've I've written. And I'm just going to touch on it a little bit here because cultural Marxism is what we're seeing. Cultural Marxism is what all of this is. This goes back to, I don't want to get into the history of it, I do that in the article, but this goes all the way back to the end of World War I, when followers of Marx thought that the Great War would lead to a brilliant revolution of the working class in the West, primarily, against those that sent them off to war. And instead, people came home, went back to work, and began following their dreams as individuals. So, we've been building toward this moment ever since with... People trying to teach that individualism is bad, and using something called critical theory to help do that. Now, critical theory—the theory behind critical theory—is not that oppression exists. As a matter of fact, the people who created critical theory knew that it did not. The theory behind—not that there is no oppression, but that it's—it's—it's just—it's not a good. When, when you do an actual analysis of the of the effects of oppression, it actually turns out that it's oppressing people is not an effective way to economically hold them back unless the oppression is absolutely overwhelming. And I get into that in the article. I'm not going to get into it real deep here. But the point is that they were not making the argument that oppression is such a big thing, that there's a ton of it in the West. Actually, the, the West is very un- oppressive even at the time. The argument was that if you can make society believe that it's oppressed, that it will overthrow those that they believe are oppressing them. And so what they came up with, with critical theory, is they said, if we can cut segments off of society and teach them that they are oppressed by the whole and just keep doing that, you know, this group's oppressed by the whole, that group's oppressed by the whole, women oppressed by the whole, black people oppressed by the whole, Hispanic people oppressed by the whole, Asians, oppressed by the whole, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Fat people, oppressed by the whole. Gay people, oppressed by the whole. Society is oppressive of all these groups. Intersectionality, we define more and more and more groups, all of which are oppressed by the whole. What we can do then is is we can get those pieces. Once enough of society is in one or more of those oppressive groups, society will rip itself to shreds. So critical theory is not about Building a society. It's not about being inclusive. It's about being as divisive as humanly possible in the hopes of getting a society to rip itself to shreds. That's what we're seeing. We are seeing a society that is being taught intersectionality for long enough now that it has become a large enough part of our culture, of our American system, that we are beginning to hate one another and to tear our structures down. California. It's a basket case. All the crime, New York, a big city, crime everywhere. What is that other than intersectionality coming home to roost? That's what we're teaching in our schools. We're teaching them to do that. So, yeah, that's that's what's happening, and, and it's happening everywhere. Critical race theory we're taught is, or we're told, is, is just a, a legal theory taught in some law schools. Although it's not. That would actually be called critical legal studies. And yeah, that is a so-called theory, but it's it's not even really a theory because again, it's it, critical legal studies is critical theory applied to law. So the theory part is that you can destroy law by teaching critical theory in, inside of law. So the the concept that everything about our legal system is created to perpetuate racism and white supremacy is, it's absurd. But if you can get people to believe that that is what our legal system is about, then all of a sudden they think that our legal system is not just. And if you believe that our legal system is not just, well, then you want to replace it with something that is. The concept that law should be applied the same way to everyone, regardless of who they are or what they look like. If you can get people to believe that that concept is racist, then they'll want to have the law applied differently to different people. And then think of the kind of power a government that has the ability to apply the law differently to different people. Think of the power that kind of a government has, the power they have over you, over me. Once the law is no longer the deciding factor in what government can do, government can do whatever it wants. And that, of course, is... Every totalitarian's dream. It's it's ironic. We see people that are trying to implement totalitarianism calling other people totalitarians. Donald Trump was called a totalitarian or a tyrant how many times during his presidency? Four years. He must have been called a tyrant in the media four million times. Well, what kind of tyranny did he want? Fewer regulations, lower taxes. He wanted to make the American people more free to live their lives as they saw fit. And not just white Americans. We saw the most robust economic growth amongst minorities, black people, you name it, in our country's history. Women did phenomenally well under Donald Trump. So the very groups he was supposedly trying to oppress were some of the groups that made the most progress under Donald Trump. But what Donald Trump did, and what Republicans do, even before Donald Trump, Ronald Reagan, you name the name, what Republicans have always done is try to treat everyone the same. So people ask me sometimes, well, as a conservative, can you tell me what the Republican Party wants to do for black people? And I'll say, nothing. The Republican Party does not want to do a damn thing for black people, nor for white people, nor for Asian people, nor for women, nor for gay people, nor nor for for any other group, because the Republican Party doesn't think that way. The Republican Party thinks about the American people and wants to do things that help the American people to prosper. It's it's, It's the other party that wants to do things specific for specific races, as if black people have functionally different needs than white people. Now, people, we all, we all have the same basic needs. We all want a country where we are free to prosper. We all want opportunity for others, as well as opportunity for ourselves. It used to be that we differed on how to create opportunity. Now we differ on whether or not opportunity exists. Of course it does. But it only exists to the degree that we are free enough to pursue it. When you start looking at, at opportunity as an evil thing, and you start looking at success as proof of oppression. Well, what do you replace it with? A society in which nobody is successful? Well, we see what that looks like right now to look for baby formula. That's what you see with baby formula is what you will see with everything in a society in which success is considered bad instead of good, in which the rules are applied differently to different people instead of in a way that is the same for everyone. When we pursue equality of outcome instead of equality of opportunity, and equality of opportunity is a misnomer. I actually don't like the phrase anymore because in a society that is truly equal in terms of opportunity, my daughter would have the same opportunities as Bill Gates' daughter. So would a child growing up in the inner city of Detroit. They have the same opportunity as Bill Gates' daughter. And such a society ignores the role of parents in providing opportunity for their children. Do I want my daughter to have only the opportunity that someone raised in the inner city in Detroit has? Of course not. I want my daughter to have every opportunity that I could possibly give her. And so should the parent of the child in the inner city of Detroit. I don't expect that I can give my daughter the same opportunities that Bill Gates gave his, but I do want to give her every opportunity I can. And I want to help that single mother in Detroit give her children every possible opportunity, but it's got to start with her. And it's got to start with children wanting an education, valuing going to school and getting, and, and getting knowledge that they can then apply later in life with a, with a job, a career. It's got to start with the individual. Morality has to start with the individual. You can't, we can't continue to apply morality to race, saying black people are good, white people are evil, whatever. You can't do that. It doesn't work. That is the epitome of racism. What we're teaching today is the epitome of everything that we are supposed to hate, every evil that we're supposed to hate. All of a sudden, we're flipping it on its head. Evil becomes good, The police become criminals. The criminals become saints. It's insane. And it's supposed to be insane. The insanity is the message. Critical theory is supposed to destroy a country. Cultural Marxism is is you you destroy the culture of, of individualistic societies, and then they'll become open to collectivism. That is the point of cultural Marxism. It leads to communism, and that's by design. And we're building it here. We've been building it my entire life. I've been watching it in real time. I remember 1976 very, very well, the 200th anniversary of our nation. Now as we approach the 250th anniversary of our nation, I wonder if we have the same nation. I look back at that letter written by John Adams when our country was young, in which he describes all of the terrible things going on in Europe, where morality is feigned but not believed, where you have these noble lords that have these rules of virtue that they have to follow, very strict rules, rules designed to be able to figure out who the imposters are. And if you pick up the teacup the wrong way, oh, that guy's not really of noble birth. He's an imposter. That's what those rules were for. So you had these people that were immoral, living lives of excess, extravagance, with a with, with, with lack of morality, people that did terrible things to their fellow countrymen, while having this illusion of nobility, as if picking up a teacup the right way is more important than how you treat the people in your country. And he said, you can't use a constitution to restrain such people. They won't follow it. It will have the power that a net would have trying to constrain a whale. It's just going to swim through it. You're not going to get a whale with a fishing boat, and you're not going to stop that kind of immorality with a constitution. Well, he was right. And as we go further and further down the rabbit hole of an eroding morality, as we become less virtuous as a people, and less religious is what John Adams would say, but I'm not convinced that religion, the thing about religion, you can be moral without religion. What religion does is define a larger morality and that really is what we need. I think Jordan Peterson once said, the less God actually exists, the more we need him to. And the notion there is, if everybody is allowed to define their own Morality, well, that's a morality of the lowest common denominator, which is the same as not having any morality at all. That's what's affecting us on the East and West Coast. That's why crime is being driven, and we're teaching this in our schools. We're teaching people to be immoral. Morality has to come from something larger than the individual, so that it is a unifying force, so that we all know what is good and what is evil. And it has to be more than just it's evil to go into school and shoot people up because we have to try to avoid the hate that leads people to want to do that. You didn't have mass shootings in John Adams' time. It wasn't just because they didn't have AR-15s and other semi-automatic weapons. That wasn't the only reason. The primary reason you didn't have mass shootings in John Adams' times was because people didn't want to do that. If they had had AR-15s, they were religious and immoral people. And that's not to say they were perfect. I mean, slavery still existed at that time. John Adams was an abolitionist, but not everybody was. Matter of fact, in the South, abolitionists were few and far between. So it's not like they were perfect. But they believed in a unifying morality that they believe encompassed all of mankind. And they strived to be better. That's what America used to be, a country that strived to be better, that strived to improve. We didn't want to become less moral. We wanted to become more moral. We didn't want to apply liberty to fewer people. We wanted to do a better job applying it to everyone. That has to be our goal. That has to be what we return to as a people, as a society. It can't be about teaching hate. It has to be about teaching the love of your fellow man, of everyone, of all of mankind. I served in two branches of the service Marine Corps and the Army I was in combat engineer or I was a combat engineer so I was under combat arms. My job was to kill people and break things and to provide mobility and counter mobility So I had to grapple with that as a Christian. What if I have to shoot someone? Thank God I never did but I had to grapple with that question as a Christian. How would I kill somebody in combat if I believe in loving my fellow man? And the answer is, I believe in other things as well. I believe in the sanctity of life, but I also believe in the sanctity of the American mission, of liberty and justice for all, of what this country stands for. And if I have to kill someone, a fellow human being, in order to preserve the American way of life, I decided I was willing to do that. I was also willing to die to protect my country. I still am willing to die, to protect my country and that's what i'm doing here today is i am i am explaining how teaching heat teaching hate i'm sorry i am explaining how teaching hate has become an epidemic problem in our country that's leading to mass shootings it's leading to mass violence it's leading to rampant crime overwhelming the nation overwhelming our cities and states it's it's leading people to hate the police who are there to serve and protect now that's not to say the police are perfect either uh, Derek Chauvin should not have held George Floyd down after he was dead. He shouldn't have held him down while he was dying. And, he, you know, to me, I think he died of a fentanyl overdose. I don't believe Derek Chauvin actually killed him. But still, held him down for that long it was ridiculous. And that's, I get that. I, I understand. So, yeah, that was, that was not a good thing that Derek Chauvin did. But that doesn't mean all police are criminals. It doesn't even mean Derek Chauvin did it on purpose. It means he made a critical mistake that he is now going to pay for for the rest of his life. And we should all feel bad for Derek Chauvin, even as he's being punished, just as we feel bad for the family of George Floyd, because this is something that's destroyed both families. And that's that's a terrible thing. It's a tragedy. And when tragedies occur, a country of like-minded people who love one another are pulled together by it. The people on both sides, when there's a murder, the, the families on both sides are pulled together by it because of their shared humanity. The the person that did it obviously goes to prison, but the tragedy affects everyone, and it's it's a tragedy to everyone. And so that's what we need is a country that gets pulled together by tragedy instead of pushed apart by it. We need a country of people not only who are unified as one American people, but who aspire to be that. So Ladies and gentlemen, what I want you to take away from this is not that we should not have a free country, not that we should have a country that cannot be ruled by our Constitution, but that for the Constitution to have the teeth that it needs, we must have the morality to defend it, to support it, to believe in it, and to love one another with the out loud truth. So ladies and gentlemen, that's today's story. That's today's message. Please, please, it is time to get loud on America Out Loud. Thank you.